the king summoned Nathan the prophet. Look, David said, I'm living in this beautiful cedar palace, but the ark of God is out there in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, well, just go ahead and do whatever you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the Lord said to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord has declared. Are you the one to build a house for me to live in? I've never lived in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until this very day. I've always moved from one place to another with a tent and a tabernacle as my dwelling. Yet no matter where I've gone with the Israelites, I've never once complained to Israel's tribal leaders, the shepherds of my people Israel. I've never asked them, why haven't you built a beautiful cedar house for me? Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, one of your own offsprings, and I will make his kingdom strong. He's the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod like any father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. For your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. So this story raises an important question for us to think about. Does God want to be present with us in the world? And if he does, where is he? Is God with us right here? Does God manifest his presence only in specific places? Does God only manifest his presence in those places where he's gone before? Like like God always manifests his presence in those particular places that he's chosen. Well, the Bible could be summarized as the story of God's desire to be with his people. And I mean, you could just look at the storyline of the story of salvation. It starts in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was, was a place where God was presence, and his presence is what made that place a paradise. The greatest tragedy that happened in the garden was the fall of Adam and Eve. And, and what happened in the fall is that their sin separated them from God's presence. And then God chose Abraham to be what God described to be a holy nation that was set apart to be a priestly kingdom who would, as priests, be mediators to make the presence of God accessible to the rest of the world, known to the rest of the world. And then God told Moses how to go about doing that. He told him to build a portable tabernacle. And that tabernacle would house his presence. And wherever Israel went, they would go as being custodians or a priestly nation or carriers of God's presence to make his presence visible and known in the world. And so God's presence tabernacled with them. God's presence was manifested through Israel. So why did God choose to dwell in a tent in the Old Testament? Well, the answer, in in the simplest form of the answer, would be simply because God desired to be with his people. I mean, he could have chosen to be uh, uh, distant or far away, but he chose to to be in a tent right in the middle of the camp, (laughs) 
And, and the reason is he, he wants, that's, that's, that's God's heart. God's heart is to be with his people, the people whom he created. He wanted to be present with them, to be with them, to guide them, to watch over them, to care for them. And, and the Bible uses the word hesed in the Old Testament, which means to pour out his loving kindness. His loving kindness upon them. God, that's, that's God's heart. His desire is to be with His people, not to make human beings and then leave them alone. It's the, he built them, He created us for fellowship, for communion, to be together with, to share life together with us. That's the heart of God. Sounds simple, but I just want to nail that down. You know, God, God, God loves you. <laughs> God loves you and wants to be with you. He wants to spend time with you. I remember hearing this, this old minister years ago when I was a student in Bible college, and um, he was talking about his, he and his wife had both gotten really busy and had, uh, for a few days had missed their devotional time, their quiet time with the Lord. And that day they were carrying, the, this one day they were comparing notes together and, and, the, and one of them said to the other, says, you know, I really sense that in my time with the Lord today, the Lord spoke to me and said, I've been missing you. <laughs> and that's always stuck with me. Like, that's it. I don't, I don't have a devotional life. I don't spend time with God to check off something so, you know, so I'll be morally correct in God's sight. You know, no, it's because God desires relationship with us i i've been missing you <laughs> that's a that's a something someone who is in love with you says right and and so god wanted to dwell in a tent in the old testament in the center of the camp so that his presence would be their paradise so what leader in israel stands out as someone who really went after this who really wanted this who seemed to really get get it that god wanted to be with his people and he wanted to live in god's presence of course it's king david isn't it david stands out above everyone else as someone who understood that there's one thing about god that god desires and that is to be with his people and to dwell with us now moses and there, there were other people who understood that and got it moses did he at one point moses said that i i can't go forward unless you go with me lord unless your your presence goes with me i will not go up he understood the indis that god's presence was indispensable to to any measure of success. And so he, he knew he needed God's presence. But it, it's David's life particularly that was punctuated with this passion for the presence of God. And he just stands out as this model who's someone who, who gets this. Like the shorter Westminster Catechism of Faith said, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, I know David didn't write the Westminster Catechism of Faith, but, but it expresses the, the life of David, that he was so passionate for God's presence that, that, he, that a hymn, he wrote a hymn book, right? It's called the Book of Psalms, or the, the Psalter. It's, it's the expressions of David in worship over and over. Every psalm expresses how David prayed and talked to God and had a relationship with God, and it's become the hymn book of praise. C.S. Lewis said, the most valuable thing about the Psalms, what they do for me is to express the same delight in God which made David dance. 
So that's the background to the story in 2 Samuel 17, that David was a man who knew God's heart, and he knew that God desires to be with us. So David was consumed by this passion for God's presence. And Psalm uh, 63 says, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there's no water. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. And I sing in the shadow of your wings. Being in love with someone can get sappy sometimes, doesn't it? <laughs> and David's psalms are kind of sappy in, the, in his expressions of how, how, how much he needed God to be with him. Even when David sinned, even when he felt short, fell short of the glory of God, he, he, what was his one concern? Psalm 51 says, which is a psalm written after his sin with Bathsheba, he said, Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. He knew exactly what happens when we live with unconfessed sin in our life. It separates us from God's presence. When we sin, we lose fellowship with God's presence. There is no greater loss than that. Some people, when they've sinned, they're worried about the loss of their reputation or the loss of their influence or the loss of their job. But what concerned and grieved David was that he would lose God's presence in his life. There's no bigger loss than losing an awareness of God's presence. (laughs) Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. So it really shouldn't come to much of a surprise that it's David who had this desire we read about in first in second Samuel 7 to build a house for God on a hill in Jerusalem he was so passionate for God's presence that he asked God to let him build this permanent location for the presence of God to reside in a city on earth called Jerusalem And he asked God to let him build this house there that the Ark of the Covenant could be moved out of a tent into a permanent structure. And he expresses this to Nathan, the prophet. By the way, this is the first reference to Nathan in the Bible. And it says that when King David was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, he summoned Nathan the prophet and he says, look, I'm living in this beautiful cedar palace, but the Ark of God is out there in a tent. And Nathan said, well, just go ahead and do whatever you have in your mind, for the Lord is with you. So David had this ambition stirring in his heart, a heart that ran after God, and he reasoned that if, if a tent was right, the right thing in the desert, if God was present there because we were a pilgrim people wandering in the desert, and but God wanted to be present with us in our wilderness experience, then certainly a house of cedar is the proper thing for God's dwelling in our permanent location in Jerusalem. So it was a, a great idea. It was a God-honoring idea. It, how could we fault David for that? It was a legitimate concern. He wanted the ark of God's presence and God's glory to be kept in a place that was worthy of God and was a, a secure place for more secure than a portable tent. So it was a new idea. It was a, 
innovative idea. It was a noble idea. Uh, nothing like it probably had ever been imagined before. This idea of having a structure where God would be located, his presence would be there in Jerusalem. So David had this vision to build a house for God on a hill in Jerusalem. So the glory of God's presence would be available for people to come and worship. Maybe Alaska Airlines would have a flight to Jerusalem to go see the presence of God. You know, if that was if the story ended there. But that's not how the story ends. That was David's desire, but God said no. Isn't that interesting? That same night, the Lord spoke to Nathan the prophet. He said, go tell my servant David. Notice he didn't use disparaging language. He didn't put David down. He said, you dumbbell, you know. You, you know, he said, my servant, David. That was a good idea, but I have something better. This is what the Lord has declared. Are you the one to build a house for me to live in? I've never lived in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until this day. I've always moved from one place to another with a tent and a tabernacle as my dwelling. Yet no matter where I've gone with the Israelites, I've never once complained to Israel's tribal leaders, the shepherds of my people Israel. I've never asked them, why haven't you built me a cedar house in Jerusalem? Let me just pause there and say that whenever and if ever God says no to you, remember that what he's doing when he says that is that he's actually saying yes to something better. It's hard for God to say no to us about something. It's hard to hear anybody say no to us about anything most of the time, right? <laughs> but when God says no, when God closes the door, it means he intends to bring something better. He's got, I, I've got a different idea in mind. Or what about this? And, and our ideas never catch God by surprise. God's been thinking of this since eternity. The Bible says that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, right? <laughs> the tragedy that happened to Christ did not catch him by surprise. It's been in his plan. And that's why God didn't fully object to David's idea because he let his son Solomon go ahead and build that temple after David died. But God takes this moment to imagine something beyond that about the story of salvation and, and keep that story alive and look beyond this temporary moment for, to imagine a better future that God has in mind up the road. And that David, just, just imagine this, David wanted to build a place where people could come to meet God with his presence in Jerusalem. But God had something different than that in mind. He will implement something big through David. And that what God tells David then is he makes this covenant with David to build a house or to build something bigger and better and different than a house. He's speaking of a, when, he, when God speaks to David about building a house through his family line, he's speaking of a kingdom. A kingdom that, that will not just be a temporary thing, but will continue forever and ever and ever. And God makes this covenant with David that is so much bigger than a cedar house on a hill in Jerusalem. When God speaks about a house, he's using it like a pun, a pun on words, a play on words from David's meaning of house. Rather than David building God a house, God replies back to David and says, well, that's a great idea. I really appreciate your ambition in that, but let me tell you what I, what I intend to do. I am intend to build a household through your family line, David, a household of David in the form of an eternal perpetual kingdom. And God tells David something really 
big is going to come down through your family line, the line of David. And so in this covenant that God establishes with David, there's a word that's repeated over 15 times in 2 Samuel 7. It's the word house. It's the most prominent theme in this covenant. And God uses the word house to describe his coming kingdom. And he emphasizes that this kingdom will be eternal. It will continue forever. It's, and it's a house where God will dwell. And this kingdom will come through the line of David, through his family line, so that Eugene Peterson, when he's describing this story, says that the context of this chapter where God takes David is wider and further beyond the career of David. And Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says that this covenant that David makes with David is the dramatic and theological center of the entire two books of Samuel. He said it's one of the most crucial texts of the Old Testament for our evangelical faith. Well, that really ups the ante then, right? It's like, we need to get a hold of this. This is significant stuff. So here's what it's, trying to put it simply in summary. David had a vision, and we're going to get to, I haven't even got to the good point yet. I, I know you're on the edge of your seat. You know where we're going. You know what the story means. Well, I haven't got there yet. It's like I'm just bringing you along as a, kind of inductively through as God was bringing David. David had this vision for God's presence to be located at a particular place in the world, in Jerusalem. But God has a vision for his presence to spread to everyone, everywhere, around the entire world. That's a big vision. How is God going to pull that off, right? And so it brings us to this covenant that God made with David, and that God was wanting to keep his salvation plan alive, that he had started with Abraham to renew the plan of salvation. And so God keeps alive the hope that he will make his, a way for his presence to dwell with re the rest of the people on the earth. Remember the covenant he'd made with Abraham said that through your family, I will bless all the peoples of the earth. He, he raises up Israel to be a missionary nation to take God's presence to the rest of the world. And then the covenant with David, David is a member of Abraham's family line, so God narrows it down to the family of David that something is coming, someone special through the line of David will make this happen. And that same presence that David longs for, that's written about in the book of Psalms, will be fully realized in this greater son of David that is coming. That God wanted everyone, everywhere, to enjoy the same joy of his presence that David enjoyed. And so when we read in the New Testament the very first words, the very first line, the beginning of Matthew 1, 1, Jesus Christ, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, it means that a door is open for everyone to enjoy and know God's presence in the same way that David did. And that's what the covenant was pointing to. It was pointing to the arrival of David's greater son, Jesus Christ, who would enter the world through the line of, in lineage of David. And Jesus would be the, physical, the visible, physical presence of God. It's what the 
John opens up his gospel saying that you've seen Jesus, you see God coming in the flesh, God made visible. And, and, it, and it describes Jesus as the tabernacling of God, that he, he pitched his tent with us. It's not like a, a Cabela's tent or, or some tent. This is, the, this is a reference to the Old Testament tent where the the presence of God dwelt, that Jesus is now that tent, the presence of God, come to dwell on earth with us. But Jesus didn't come to live in that tent or in an Old Testament tabernacle. He came to tabernacle on earth in a different way. The Old Testament tabernacle was, was a shadow. It was a picture. It was a blueprint to, 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 to tell us that this, this plan, this design was coming it was merely a pattern that showing us that there's a way that God would send His Son to spread His glory around the entire world, not in a specific location, that He would spread His presence over everyone. And so the covenant that God made with David is fulfilled finally in Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Son of David, is the new and living way into the presence of God. Now, that's kind of heavy, isn't it? But it's, I tell you, when you, when you capture it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to explode in your soul, I promise you. It's a question that's, that's loaded like a bomb. It's going to go off. I hope it goes off here soon. <laughs> it's going to go off in that corner. Better get ready. Let me, uh, I, I just love the study of the names and the titles of Jesus Christ. I, I've written a lot about it. I would like to put it in a book form sometime. But one of the coolest, neatest titles of Jesus found in the Bible is found in Revelation 3.7 where it says that Jesus has the key of David. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't that make you think? What's it mean? It says Jesus is the true one, like the true one. He's the, he, he's the fulfillment of the covenant that God gave. He, this is the one you've been looking. He's the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts and who shuts and no one opens. A key represents the owner of a house, right? For Jesus to say that he has the key to David's house means that he's the supreme regal rightful heir to the house or the eternal kingdom that God had promised to David. If Jesus has the key of David, it means he is the one who makes the, the unlocks the door to, to enter into the kingdom of God. He's, so when Jesus said, when he came, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, he was referring to himself being the key of David. John 1.14 says, the word became a human being and lived with us and we saw his Shekinah or his presence and the Shekinah of the Father's only Son, full of grace and full of truth. Have you noticed, as I said earlier, how the New Testament begins in, in Matthew 1.1 with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it, then it, Matthew unpacks the gospel in a different way that Luke does. Luke describes the birth of Jesus with the shepherds coming to visit him, but Matthew introduces it with the wise men coming from the east. And so Matthew says that here's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He's the son of David. And then for the next four chapters, he describes where Jesus went. 
wise men came from the east. His family went down to Egypt. And it describes how the ministry of Jesus went to the four um, places, the compasses of the directions of the globe. And it fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah that says, and uh, that that Isaiah it says in Matthew four, and leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that. What was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them the light has dawned. And it says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Matthew is saying that here is David's greater son arrived to claim his kingdom. And God's presence came to our world in Jesus Christ. And Matthew describes how Jesus' ministry spread to the four corners of the earth just like the region of David's reign expanded in those same directions and encompassed that same geographical area. And so Matthew is intentionally shaping his story with a geography lesson, which answers our question, addresses our question, where is God's presence located? And Matthew shapes his gospel with the move of Jesus, the presence of God come to our world, going to all the people, going beyond Jerusalem, going out to everyone, everywhere, to let us all know that we all are included in this invitation to know the presence of God personally, that Jesus came to indwell us each one through his grace and sacrifice on the cross. So God wanted his presence to dwell in everyone, everywhere, far beyond the limits of Jerusalem. God had a much bigger vision He saw people of every tribe, of every nation, filled with God's presence, carrying his presence from Jerusalem to Judea to the uttermost parts of the earth. And you know, that's the commission in after Pentecost when the Spirit came. Jesus said at the end of his ministry, when he told his disciples he was going to leave and be resurrected and ascended into heaven, they said, oh no, we don't want you to leave. They they wanted him to be present with them, to, to dwell with them. He says, no, don't worry about that. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit who will be with you and shall be in you. And then he came at Pentecost, and at Pentecost it wasn't just to have a a holy huddle that there, there, now, there is where God's presence will be. No, it was the sending of the Spirit to take the Holy Spirit with them everywhere to embody the presence of God so that it will go from Jerusalem to Judea to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's the spreading of God's glory through the people of God far beyond what David could ever hope or imagine when he was imagining a house on a hill in Jerusalem. David thinks of a house for God, but God doesn't want to live in a house on a hill in Jerusalem. God has a, He wants to spread His glory of His presence all over, to the, all over the earth, to everyone, every household, to every name, to every clan. Whether your name's Shillington or... O'Donnell, 
you know, whatever your name is. God can indwell each one of our households. God wants to spread His glory of His presence all over the earth. And so God is imagining a different kind of house. It's what in the New Testament Paul calls the household of faith. It's what he describes as this hidden mystery, this mystery that that was hidden for so long, but now is revealed in Jesus Christ, that through David's greater son, Jesus Christ would come to build his church on earth, made up of spirit-filled believers who would carry the presence of God into the workplace, into the world, to the far regions of the earth. God's presence would spread, spread everywhere. So this means that God lives in the church. God established the church in order to indwell the church, to indwell the body. We're the body of Christ now, the walking, talking living presence of Jesus in the world. We are His dwelling place where He lives, where He moves in the world to accomplish His will, to establish His kingdom on the earth. Remember when Jesus came and went to the four places of the globe in His region and He began to speak, the kingdom of heaven has arrived. We are the dwelling place of God. And wherever the church gathers, Jesus said, there I am, there's where, there's, where I'm, there's where I'm located, I'm in the midst of them. Well, how many people need to gather for Jesus to be there? He says, where, where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst of them. <laughs> oh, I love that. We need to hear an amen. Come on, Josh. David had a desire to build a house for God on a hill in Jerusalem, so the glory of God's presence would be available for people to come and see and enjoy and worship. But God had a dream to build households of faith that would spread His glory, the glory of His presence all over the earth so worship can be lifted up all over the earth. I had a, a, a slide to show of the people worshiping down at Asbury, Kentucky and the, the outpouring of God's Spirit that's been happening down there the last few weeks. And, and can you see that there? I actually had some audio there. That just blesses me every time I read it. What a picture that is of people worshiping Jesus. That's, that's what G God had in mind when He told David no. He had in mind scenes like this everywhere around the world, not just in Jerusalem, but in little Wilmore, Kentucky, and also in Willow, Alaska. Amen? <laughs> That's what we're here for. Where does God want His presence to abide? His presence is for us right here, right now, in Willow, Alaska. David God saw God's presence abiding in Jerusalem, but God saw something different. He saw His presence. He saw the people of God filled with the Spirit of God, giving praise to the glory of God in a little log cabin in Willow, Alaska, and all over the world. He wants to abide in you and in me. You are meant to be the habitation of God's Spirit. You are meant to be a person that was created to embody God's presence wherever you go. You are meant to be the manifestation of God's glory. 
where you go. So that Paul said in Ephesians 2, and I'll close with this, so now, you Gentiles, like we're included in this. It's not just a Jewish thing. It's not just a privilege exclusive to the Jewish race. But now you Gentiles are enfolded, invited, included in this. You are no longer strangers and foreigners. In other words, cut off and left out of the privilege of fellowship with God. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. And together we are His house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus Himself. We are carefully joined together in Him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through Him, you Gentiles are also being made part of His dwelling where God lives by His Spirit. You and I were designed to be the habitation of God's presence. You can't live without God's presence. And that's why you were made. That's how you were designed. And that's why Jesus came. And that's what the gospel is all about. How Jesus came to die for our sins. The sin that separates us from the presence of God. And there's nothing that humankind needs more than fellowship with God. The presence of God. But Jesus dealt with that problem by going to the cross, dying for our sins, shedding his blood so that we can be friends with God. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> that gets my exciter excited. <clears throat> All right, well, let's worship the Lord and we'll close after these songs with prayer and I invite you to, to respond to what you've heard this morning, however God has been speaking to you. Just just. In your heart, say yes to the Lord. Say, yes, I, I want what he's talking about, Lord. I, I want your presence more than anything else in my life. Let's stand together. <clears throat>